Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. If you have an HTTP-based API, you're most likely using the principles of REST to organize your system. While building such a system, it's helpful to organize your code in a way that is not only clean and eloquent, but that is thoroughly predictable to both new developers and anyone else working with your system. In this episode, we'll discuss some anti-patterns and common mistakes that you might see when using REST, along with why these are mistakes. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well... (laughs) So about a week ago, I guess it was, I looked at the way I was storing all of my documents, my MP3s. You know, I have like courses that I've bought and I've downloaded and I've got them. And I was looking at it and I realized that the way that that stuff was laid out was based around having much smaller hard drives than I do now. And so it was like broken into sections that synchronized, in, you know, separately. And I had like 25 of them. But now I've got the NAS. And when I moved over to the NAS, I just moved all that stuff and did the thing and I'm like back up and running real quick. And so last week I was like, you know, I ought to fix that because this is organized in the way that was useful to me in 2008. Okay, cool. So I got sync thing and I've, you know, been doing all that stuff. So I made my new directories. I set up all the backup stuff to, you know, watch these directories and move the stuff around. It took about 20 hours to get everything synchronized inside the house. And my network connection was pretty heavily saturated (laughs) for about four days. It was awesome. You know, you start it and you get it, you actually get the move going. Like, so I think it was like 3.30 on Friday is when I actually started the RoboCopy scripts to move all the stuff around. You know, like I scripted out what I was going to do and told it to do it. And yeah. My network connection was well saturated up until I think the middle of the day yesterday. It's been real annoying. I don't, you know, I think it probably isn't hurting other things, but it's like hurting the machines that I use. And now the backup set is running. And so it's just, it's been miserable, dude. Like I've been thinking about like downloading an MP3 of like one of those old school modems and just like setting that as the the opening sound. I open a new tab in Chrome because just to get the feel for the, my connection speed. <laughs> Anyway, it's caught back up, so I'm back in the 2020s now as far as internet speed, so I got that going for me. How about you? Well, actually, just before we got started, I got a text from our tech lead at church. We uh, had Comcast come out because like, we have the business plan and we're not getting what we should. There is some, some issue with the line coming in, but now we're up to like gigabit speed at the church for streaming and stuff, so... That's cool. That's what that that reminded me of. Oh, man. Interruptions are killing me at work. If it's not QA asking how to test something, it's some level of management asking for an update. I finally had to send an update that said I spent all day sending updates. Yep. Which was not facetious. Yeah, it's it's funny how often you and I get into that situation where we say something and people are like, oh, he's just being funny. It's like, no, really. I was 100% serious. Like I was telling you, I had that earlier today where somebody said, Will, pull master. And I'm like, was Will a 
noun or a verb yeah. in that sentence you just said, because that kind of matters to me. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. No, um, like I said, I had like an hour long conversation with one of the directors about updates and I, it was said, oh, I'm not, I'm sure it wasn't an hour long. And I, I took screenshots of the Slack conversation and sent it and said, yep, it was an hour. Started at 9.30, ended at 10.36. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, yeah, that's that's what's going on. Now, speaking of going on, as things are opening back up, uh, one of my friends from church bought himself a motorcycle. So uh, we've been riding. Honestly, it's fun to ride out somewhere with someone and have a beer. I, I've, I've missed doing that, like, during the quarantine, Amanda and I were trying to, you know, support local breweries. So we would ride out to some of the breweries and buy beer and then ride home and drink it because you couldn't drink it there. But being able to like ride out and sit and have a beer was nice. And uh, it's really cool because he's an engineer who does a little bit of coding as part of his job. So uh, Saturday, I was telling him about some of the stuff that I've gotten to do lately and ended up giving him a lesson on recursive functions and how they work. Did you put another lesson in it? <laughs> Yo, dog, heard you like recursion. Dude, though, seriously, you should have seen his eyes light up when I explained. I, like I said, yeah, I got to write this really cool recursive function to, to deal with some file system stuff. And he's like, what's that? And I was explaining, you know, a method that calls itself and how that works. And he was just like, that's possible. That's so cool. Cause everything he's done has just been to automate and make his job easier. It's not been like because of programming. And so I'm working, I'm going to make him a programmer yet. He, he really thinks it's cool. So nice. Yeah. Now, uh, mother's day was two weeks ago. Two Sundays ago. Is that right? Yeah. It's all blurred together at this point. I know. But uh, my aunt was very sick. She actually passed away on Mother's Day. Um, so my mom had to cancel our plans and spent the whole weekend with her. I actually didn't see mom until this past week. So we, we had Mother's Day this past Sunday with her. Um, Amanda and I went over there and uh, had barbecue and wine because why not? Seems fair. Yeah, yeah, it was it was fun. We had a we had a good time. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and get on into book club. This week, we are talking about the sixth quality of a team player: dependable. And a quote from the chapter. Teams go to go to players. Maxwell starts off telling about Christopher Reeves, the man who played Superman in the original movies, and how he was thrown from a horse and became a quadriplegic. He went from being in peak physical condition to needing a team of people just to function daily. Reeves had to depend on these people for his very life. Maxwell then talks about what he sees as the essence of dependability. First, he says that a dependable team member will have pure motives, not putting their agenda before the team. Next is responsibility. Team members desire to do the things they are capable of doing. And third is good judgment. 
which must be combined with responsibility to make a dependable teammate. And finally, he states that dependable teammates are consistent. Closing out the chapter, he gives three ways to improve your own dependability. Look at your motives, find out what your word is worth, and get someone to be an accountability partner. Or if you're a uh, South Park fan, an accountability buddy. I'd forgotten about that. <laughs> <laughs> so there'll be a link to this in the show notes. So normally we would say, you know, who's talking to us right now, comments and water bottles are on hold. We have supply chain issues, obviously related to COVID that and comments are currently off on the website as of last time I checked because of all the spam, we've got to go in there and fix that. We've just both been slammed for the last several months. We'll get to it eventually. So just you know, go ahead and reach out to us in a comment. And when things come back on, we'll be good to go. Also, we are at the end of our supply of water bottles. So we may not continue doing water bottles. We are open to suggestions. So if you have a suggestion as to what we could do instead of water bottles, and I'll go ahead and say this, not coffee mugs, way too many other dev podcasts do coffee mugs. So we like to be a bit unique. If you have any suggestions, something that you think, you know, wouldn't be too expensive for us to to buy in bulk, let us know. Send us an email to neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. And guys, you can still leave comments on our social media. We post all our episodes to Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We're also on Instagram, and I think we're on Tumblr. I really need to double check that. Or you could join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Web APIs are often the best way to go when different parts of your application need to communicate or when people outside of your organization need to communicate with your application. Not only are web APIs based upon a widely understood and implemented protocol, but they are also widely accepted across industry. Further, if your API is structured properly, using HTTP enables developers using a wide variety of platforms and languages to easily interact with it. However, there's always a price to wide acceptance and easy use. Usually, that price is that there are expectations as to how your system will behave. These expectations are both obvious and they can sometimes be surprising. But this is the case with building REST APIs. While many concepts are fairly obvious and easily understood, their implications can, at times, be surprising. Before we get into the episode, let's do a quick little review of REST. REST stands for Representational State Transfer, and it is an architectural style for communications between systems on the web. REST systems are characterized by statelessness and separation of the concerns of the client and the server. They're defined as a request response between the client and the server. Yeah. And there's a few important parts to this whole thing. The first is the path. You know, that's the URL that you are interacting with. That's the endpoint on the server. Mm -hmm. The next important part is the verbs, which indicates the intent of the request that you're making. The next is the body. And this is the payload of that request. It is the, the meat, the content of it. There's also the header, and this is the metadata about the request. Yeah. Then there's also the response code, which indicates the result of the request. 
along with that, there is the actual response, which is a payload that comes back. So the response code is this was a successful or a failed request and details about that, whereas the response is what comes back. Right. And so uh, part of the idea there is that you don't have to parse the response to find out whether it was a success or not. Mm -hmm. So you can determine, okay, the server says this is a failure, not my parser screwed up. Yeah, exactly. Um, So that fits into the whole separation of concerns. As we go through this episode, we're going to discuss some of the anti-patterns that you'll commonly see. But in the meantime, if you're not familiar with this stuff, check out episode 219 of the podcast for a deeper dive into this material because we covered that fairly thoroughly, I think. Yeah. So as Will is saying in this episode, we're going to go through some anti-patterns that you're very likely to see and that you need to avoid when working with and writing REST APIs. Yeah, and the first one you're going to see all over the place, unfortunately, is uh, improper use of response codes. Oh my goodness. Especially like if you have somebody that's like, oh, let's do a RESTful API and they don't know what that means. You're going to see a lot of this. There are known response codes for various states of the server. You should be using them. If you don't know what they are, go figure that out before you write an endpoint. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about a few of these. I, yeah, this is just... I. Oh, I'll tell you the, the most frustrating thing I've had to deal with. And I used to get really, really upset about it until I realized that the code was not designed to be used the way it was being used. But basically, it was a uh, an internal service, sort of a microservice that I, I had to contact that uh, if it erred, it wouldn't send back an error. It would send back a success with the error code in it. Yeah. As a, yeah. Uh, or yeah, with like the the error, the whole error in it, because what it was designed to do was work with a command line app and be sort of like the integration between that command line app and the server. But it got sort of overloaded. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, I had I have a similar story like that. Uh, the code in question was, again, uh, not designed to be used. It was designed to not get the guy fired. Where an HTTP response code of one was always returned, because one is true. Okay. Yeah, that was, that was new hotness. So, so that you're not ignorant like that person was let's talk about the response codes and what they mean the first set is your informational responses these go from 100 to 199 and there's really not a whole lot of notable ones but one of them is 101 which is switching protocol it's like going hey we're going from http to https or we're you know doing some other negotiation strategy in there next are the success responses these are 200 to 299. And the main ones you'll see here are either 200, which is okay. And this is the issue I was having. I was getting a 200 response back, but it was erroring. So what I was expecting was 200 response back and then a specific type of response. And my app was erroring because it was trying to read that and going, hey, this is. This is a string, not what you were expecting. Right. That's why you separate <laughs> that stuff, right? Like that's yes. why it's in the response code is so that you can branch on it before you try to parse it. Because again, like this, bear in mind when this stuff was built, parsing text was not cheap, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're talking, you know, early nineties 
type technology. And, and so it took a while for the payload to come down and for you to try to parse that. And you load it all up in a memory just to have it crash. And then you deal with the response means that everything gets really slow and there's errors. Whereas you can just go, oh, it failed. Yeah. It succeeded and then branch on that. So yeah, we use 204 a lot as well, just to indicate that the response of a post, for instance, like, yep, here's the stuff, there's no data or, you know, those kind of things. The next class of stuff you'll see are redirects. Redirects go from uh, 300 to 399. One of the most common ones is 301. That means that the, that resource got moved permanently. Uh, you use this a lot or uh, search engine optimization type stuff so that Google bots, when they hit a link, go into your site, it goes, oh, this isn't where this is now. It's over here. The next one are the uh, the 400 to 499, which are client errors. So these could be like a 401, which is unauthorized, a 403, which is forbidden, and then everyone's favorite error code, the 404 not found. Right. Which is one fifth of 2020, which I think is notable considering how this year is going. <laughs> um, I've, I've I've seen those memes, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> you know I just saw that and I'm like, hmm, that's that's a little too a little too close to home to be comfortable with. Yeah. Now this does say client errors, and it is supposed to be client errors. I have seen this happen at the server side where everything was forbidden because somebody screwed up. This means you're requesting something that the server does not think you have permission to or does not think is there. That does not, in fact, mean that you don't, you shouldn't have permission or that it isn't there and they just screwed up routing. Yeah. It's a probability thing. Like the client is probably the one that screwed up. When you say client, what are you talking about? Like client API, client as in uh, this could be the, the call? You know, web browser. You know, this could be like your Angular app. This could be a console app calling out to a microservice. Could be another microservice. Could be AWS Lambda, you know, checking stuff at it and it's whatever. See, what I use these these errors for, I mean, the first the, the unauthorized and the forbidden and then, you know, are for, hey, you're usually unauthorized as you don't have the right authentication. Yeah, you didn't uh, log or, in, Goober. Yeah, you you didn't log in or the the app calling into the API doesn't have like didn't use the right token or whatever security measure we're using for that particular application. Um, yeah. And um, then like what I like to do is I differentiate here between this is something that the API caught the error versus it's an issue with the server. And it's how I tell, Hey, this is me that needs to fix it versus this is ops that need to fix it. Because if it's a, the next one we're going to talk about, which is the 500 to 599 server errors, that usually means it for me that it's an operations thing because it's something wrong with the server or something set, not set up correctly. Yeah. And the, the way I've uh, seen client errors explained also, because uh, people have a hard time understanding the difference between unauthorized, forbidden and not found. Mm-hmm. You know, like in a in a business context, for some reason, like and I know it takes a minute to for the differences to click in your head. Unauthorized means you forgot your keys when you got home. Forbidden means that the key that you're trying to use does not unlock the door. Not found means you're at the wrong house. That's a good way of explaining it. Yeah. And I forget who did that explanation. You know, it's another cranky developer, which is not like I hang out with that many of them, right? So that doesn't narrow anything down. Speaking of cranky developers, 
The next category is server errors, and these are from 500 to 599. And the most common one you're going to see all the time, especially in Beej's code, is 500 internal server error. <laughs> I'm joking. I, hey, you know, I got one of those today. It was a stack overflow. So I can't. You know. Well, that's, that's what I was saying. If you get a 400 error, then it is, it's something like something went wrong within the code or, you know, maybe you're not passing the right parameters in. you're not doing, you know, there's something wrong in that interaction. If you get a 500 error, that means it likely didn't even get to my API. Yeah. It's in the middleware somewhere. Yeah. You can on itself. And that's when I call the operations team and go, Hey, I'm, I'm getting this error. What's up? And they're like, we'll restart the app pool and that fixes everything. It's operations version of turn it off and back on again. <laughs> that's almost exactly what it is. <laughs> I, I, that's why I, that was the joke. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I know. For my joke, but yeah. well, it's, it's, it's a joke <laughs> and it's funny. It's just kind of like really uncomfortable. The more you think about it, <laughs> we're still doing that. Yeah, it's really common to see incorrect response codes. Um, like you said earlier, returning a 200 along with an error in the payload. Mm-hmm. Now, I've seen people do this with like wrappers in the payload for some kind of, you know, you return, like you return a, you know, 500 or you return a client error. You, know, you might yeah. like return a, you know, a 403, but there's a, you might send a payload back with it or something where what's in the payload is what the app should be displaying versus what the developers should be dealing with. Mm-hmm. So like you have internationalized error messages or whatever. I've kind of seen that approach, which I think is probably okay-ish. Um, it's just not real intuitive. The place I did this most was with file uploads. When we were uploading to uh, like a, a long-term storage service and I need the UI developer to be able to tell their person, hey, a difference between, all right, you didn't attach a file when you tried to upload this versus, hey, there's something wrong with the service we're using. Come back later and try again. Right. You know, and it's it's the same endpoint. So like I needed to be like, all right, I need them to know. And so I would I would attach a message within the error that's like, here's what's going on. And then they could use that to know what to display. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where protocol is nice and all. But not getting a call at two o'clock in the morning is nicer. <laughs> People are very willing to bend it. Um, and speaking of things getting bent, uh, another common mistake is to create redirect loops accidentally. <laughs> Those are always fun. I mean, eventually they'll they'll stop, but like your clients will be like, "What in the world is going on? The server just flipped out." Because you can do that, you know, if you set your redirects wrong. So the next type of errors that we're going to talk about are improper use of HTTP verbs. And verbs basically express intent in a roughly CRUD fashion. CRUD is a create, read, update, delete. Yeah. The The thing is, is there's, there's some other bits in here too. <laughs> a get. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, a get gets things from the server. So this is like, go and get the you know, this box of crayons out of the cabinet. Mm-hmm. That's a get. A head request is identical to a get, but doesn't get the body. So that would be like, look in there and see if there's a box of crayons. Yeah. The post submits an entity to the resource. Hey, I bought you a box of crayons. Put it in the cabinet. But note, we don't call that put. Post it to the cabinet. <laughs> a put 
replaces a resource. Hey, this box of crayons, you know, they're made out of lead-based paint. Let's replace those because, you know, I know that you eat crayons because you think mm, they're tasty. Yummy. <laughs> yeah, I figured you'd say something like that. A delete deletes a resource. Hey, these are lead-based paint crayons. Let's get rid of them. We haven't gone to Target to get more yet. A patch applies a partial modification to a resource. Hey, nobody likes the white crayon. Replace it with this green one that's way cool. Because nobody uses the white crayon. Like that's like the immortal crayon in every box. Right? Like you think back as a kid, that crayon is always there. You can only use it to write on, you know, nice walls. Yeah. (laughs) And get a whooping. Mm -hmm. So typical mistakes in this area include using the wrong verb for the intent of your action. And this can get tricky when you you have like blended calls. So like if you are searching and you have to pass in a payload to run like of the information you want to search by, but then you have to pull, then you're also getting things back from the server. Yeah, and we'll get into some of that is pathing, but I mean, I've I've run into the same thing too, right? Like you can put a lot of stuff in the URL, but after a while, it's like, look, I'm searching on 20 different parameters. I'm not putting all those in the query string. Like that's just not happening more than likely because everybody's going to have a hard time with that. It's going to be hard to deal with. So yeah, this is a pretty common mistake. One thing I've seen people do is go, hey, look, a complex search. They're, They're like, look, I'm posting a search. Fine, I'll just record the search. Now it's a post. Leave me alone. <laughs> I've seen that one too. Just get rid of the purists. You're going to bend these rules on occasion because of implementation details. Mm-hmm. But some stuff that you really need to be careful about is stuff like using a Git to make changes. Um, this is especially bad on the open web if it's a path that gets crawled because Google will now be making changes to your system yeah. by hitting an endpoint if they can get to it. The other thing too is a Git. Uh, typically does not get cached or it rather typically does get cached. And so the request may not actually really reach the server. Mm-hmm. So there's intent expressed around these actions at the browser level that you need to be careful about. The next one is the incorrect use or complete ignoring of mime types. <laughs> well, they are silent, right? <laughs> so I had, I had some, uh, some conversations about this today. A lot of conversations today. So we'll get into that. Yeah, so there's a lot of these. Um, there's only a few in most apps, and you know here, we're going to kind of talk about a few of them. You know, text slash plain is exactly what it sounds like, raw text, and just completely ignore our episode on string manipulation that tells you exactly how raw text is not as simple as you thought it was <laughs> for the purposes of this discussion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the next is text uh, slash HTML. It's also exactly what it sounds like. Uh, HTML for use in the browser. Yeah. And people can do a web page in like 30 minutes. So there's no reason that this is complex. I think everybody here agrees. Um, <laughs> I can't even say that with a straight face. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that just broke my sarcasm meter. Um, application slash JSON is pretty common as well. Uh, JSON stands for JavaScript Object Notation, which is a serialization format that is human readable, except when it isn't. Hey, it's still easier than XML. Yeah. Unless you've been using um, XML for a long time. Yeah. In other words, you've been working on config files for Microsoft products. Um, hey, they're moving They're moving over to, to JSON in uh, .NET Core. Yeah. Well, they, they have to because 
Otherwise, why not just do it in binary and just go, hey, just open a hex editor if you want to edit this. I think that's reasonable. <laughs> the next one that you'll see a lot is uh, application slash x dash www dash form dash URL encoded. That sends the body of an HTTP message as one long string with name value pairs separated by the ampersand. This is like crap that you post up yeah. from a form. Um, and the, the last one we're going to mention here, like Will said, there are a lot of these, is multi-part slash form dash data. And this sends name value pairs as separate parts of the message separated by a string boundary. We use this for passing in files when we're uploading things, yeah. mainly that's what I, that's what I think of because that's what I've been working on a lot lately. But uh, yeah, like that's that's the main use for this because it it overcomes the link restrictions and like JSON strings. Yeah, and there's always stuff like that to work around on these kind of implementations. So mm-hmm. stuff like that is there for that reason. So. As far as MIME types go, the client is responsible for specifying what type of content they want, and they negotiate that with the server. A common failure is when this doesn't happen. So, for instance, the client is asking for XML because reasons. You have an object, you can serialize it to JSON, you don't serialize it to XML, and they asked for it, and you didn't say, oh, we can't give you that, but you just hand them JSON. That is an incorrect behavior at the server level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you should throw an error if you can't serialize it to XML. So, well, I mean, I guess I could see some reasons why you couldn't turn JSON into XML, but. Well, and there's frameworks that have issues. And you also have to bear in mind there are people who do not seem to understand that commercial parsers and serializers and, you know, open source packages like that are a good idea to use. And so they do it with string manipulation instead. And so they literally have to write something that does that. And so they haven't written it. Yeah. So. And especially on older systems, this is something you'll run into. Now, another common mistake is to completely ignore the content type requested or to send content back that doesn't have the MIME type set, like sending JSON as text, for instance. Yeah. And yeah, you can kind of get away with that Mm -hmm. until somebody is strictly trying to implement it and they're looking at what's going back and forth and they're like, why is this text? Yeah. You know, and they may be making assumptions based off of the API signature, especially if you're using something like Swagger, for instance. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, okay, this thing returns text. Well, it's actually JSON. I need to have something that can parse JSON to read that versus whatever I'm going to try to do with raw text yeah. on the open web, which is probably psycho anyway. I forget, I forget what it was I was working on, but I had something not long ago where the and it was it was .NET Core API, but it kept returning it was a JSON object. It kept returning it as text, like as a string. And it like it's gonna stringify the JSON when it sends it back, but it was coming in. So like when I was testing the API, it was coming into Postman as a string. And it was like it was so frustrating to me. But then I talked to my UI developer, my Angular developer, and he's like, yeah, it doesn't matter. He's like, if it's in JSON no matter if it's a string or not, whatever it comes in as, I can parse that if it's JSON string. And I'm like, I know, but it yeah. should be coming in as JSON. It's just, it's not working right. Yeah, it really, <laughs> yeah, because it, well, the other thing too is if you're not returning the right thing and you have something on the other end that generates code yeah. for talking to the thing, it's going to be wrong. Yeah. 
that was that was my thing too. I'm like, you know, yeah, you can do it now, but looking down the line, if we switch out our front ends, where it's going to expect JSON and it's going to come in as a string, and it's just like I've got to get this figured out and working right, and I eventually got it working, but it was just I don't even remember what I had to do. It was a while back, but it was frustrating at the time. So speaking of uh, frustration, another common category of issues is incorrect use of or ignoring of caching. Um, And this one's one that actually happens on both ends. The purpose of caching is to reduce the use of bandwidth, reduce latency, reduce load on servers, and possibly hide issues with connections. So if you have a transient error, if most of your clients are caching their results anyway, it doesn't hurt as quick. You can get out of it, essentially, before everybody notices that you screwed up. Mm -hmm. Caching is heavily dependent on your HTTP verbs, which is why Will was talking about that when we were talking about the verbs. And it's important because if you have your verbs messed up, you're going to have your caching messed up by default. Right. And I've seen things even where browsers did this wrong. Yeah. On the iPad, I think it was Safari cache the results of post requests. Yeah, I've seen that. For a little while there as a bug. I mean, you talk about a nightmare because the web development team is like, oh, it doesn't do that. And there's like one guy that's going, yes, that's what's happening. And it's like a four hour argument. Yeah. Because these assumptions are are so deeply rooted and they're necessary for things to work. And so when they don't work, mm-hmm. you're going to have a bad time. That said, get requests are cached by default. Post requests are not cached by default because they change state, but they can be cached using the expire and cache control headers. Responses to put and delete requests are not cacheable at all. You don't want to cache those because... Yeah, like, what would you cache a delete? Yeah. like So if you delete it again, you're going to say we deleted it before? <laughs> uh, yeah, like, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It's like, you cache it. Yeah, if you delete something... And then you try to delete it again. You need to get an error because something's wrong. Yeah, I would if you're trying to delete something yeah. you already deleted. So now there's some other headers that are important here. You know, in addition to the verbs, there's the expire header, and that's used to indicate when the result of a request is to be considered stale and needs to be revalidated. This is a date. Yeah, essentially, that's what you would use if you wanted to pseudo cache a post request. It's the Mission Impossible header. This message will self destruct in eight seconds. But uh, another one, e-tags are string tokens that a server associates with a resource to uniquely identify the state of the resource over time. When the resource is changed, the e-tag changes. Right. And so one thing you can do here is if you do like a head, you can actually do that call and say, oh, the e-tag is not changed from what I have. That's one of the intents here. Um, oh, that, that makes sense because I was like, you know, if you got a big honking payload, yeah, that's worthwhile. Here's the thing with cache control headers. Uh, they're composed of a set of directives that indicate whether a response is cacheable, who it can be cached by, and for how long. Some common mistakes in this area include not caching, caching for the wrong amount of time, or caching when you shouldn't. For instance, Caching things like, uh, you know, keeping passwords and stuff in cache, not a good idea because of security. That's one thing. 
keeping things like if you have a, an app that dispatches jobs to a service and says, hey, do this thing for me. Mm-hmm. And then you check and you go, what's it doing? Well, if that thing's cached for 24 hours, you don't have enough granularity on your responses to know whether something's done or not for 24 hours. That's dumb. Mm-hmm. I've also seen things where people will just go, yeah, just cache it for a minute. You know, and they just do it across the board because like, well, that'll that'll help with a lot of our requests and it probably will. But usually what you have to do is actually start thinking about how frequently something changes, you know, like what its volatility level is. And then you determine your cache duration based on that, not based on just random pulled out of the opening numbers. Yeah. The next thing is improper request structure. Uh, It's also common to see people incorrectly structure things based on the type of request or response. Right. So like in a get request, most of the stuff you need should be in the path, not the body. In fact, I would pretty much say always because otherwise it's a post. It's just, you know, things get weird, mm-hmm. you know, otherwise. Similarly, stuff that's cross-cutting concerns. So like authentication tokens, caching directives, those kind of things should be placed in headers instead of in the body. Data being placed into the system via put, post, or patch command needs to be in the request body, not in the path or the head. Right. There is a little wiggle room here on some of this Mm -hmm. because I've seen things where somebody will post and say, hey, I'm like we do this with our Elasticsearch implementation, right? It's like you post to this this route with this tenant ID and it says update their Elasticsearch stuff for this tenant. Mm Mm-hmm. There's nothing in the body. It's all in the path. Yeah. But typically you don't do that. It's just we do that because it makes the URLs clean and, Mm -hmm. you know, that's already segmented by tenant. There's very few circumstances where you do that. Your response structure is under similar constraints based on what HTTP verbs were supplied. There's stuff that should come back in the headers. There's stuff that should come back in the body. The thing about mixing this stuff up is it tends to be confusing to consumers of your REST API and it's best avoided if you want your system to be easy to work with, which is the reason you're building an API, right? So some disparate system out there can talk to your system. Now, sometimes I've seen where a post will return the object posted yeah. because... Especially if it's an update or it's a new new one with an ID now. Because what will happen, like, if it's a singular, like, all right, we're updating this one thing, this one table, you know, you can just return the ID. But if you're you're doing a deep object that has connections on multiple tables, it's going to be complicated to do that. So it's it's just easier, I found, to return the object with those IDs in. Yeah, and the other reason I'll I'll do this is sometimes other things besides just the ID get updated on the server. Yeah, as well. So it's not just the ID, but it's like okay, here's you know, here's this string and we're going to go get you some other piece from some other system and put it back into that object, and hand it back to you. And that needs to display on the UI. Yeah. And so you, you just kind of have to do that so that the client can work with it. Now, the, the other thing you could do is you could also pass a token with your request when you do a post that says, hey, I'm going to ask for this token here in a minute, go get it. But that's two requests. It's kind of a waste. Yeah, that's what I was saying. The, the other way to do it would be to to do something like that or to return the ID of the object and then have them do a get to pull back the object. And it's like, you know, you're, you're taking up bandwidth when you do that. Yeah. Or you give it like a topic ID and you have like a WebSocket push when the thing's done. Yeah. I mean, there's ways to do this, but really that's, that's simple. And I think 
I'm not entirely sure that's completely with standard mm-hmm. or not, but like everybody and their mother does that. It's sort of like speeding. It's like, yeah, it's the law, but yeah. you know, what percentage of the population is following that one? Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of errors, uh, <laughs> or speaking of sins and errors, poor handling of errors is another common uh, category here. Error codes should accurately indicate what went wrong along with who originated the problem. Yeah. And like we said earlier, server-side errors start in the 500s and generally indicate something's wrong with the server. Yeah, or some piece of infrastructure back there. Mm-hmm. You know, either the server, the database server, the network infrastructure, a gateway, that kind of, In other words, it's not the client's fault, probably. Yeah. A client-side error starts with 400 and indicates that the client did something wrong. They went to the wrong path. They aren't, aren't authorized etc. It's really common to get these mixed up. For instance, let's say that the client requests a resource that doesn't exist. If this causes a null reference exception, it's going to return a 500 rather than the 404 that it should because it made a server-side error, but it's really a client problem. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That's why I said there's a probability thing here because developers do screw up on both ends. Yeah. Also, you need to use the correct codes within each section to indicate what is going on this helps with debugging so if you have a 404 that means the resource isn't found as opposed to a 405 that means you can't use a particular http verb on that resource right for instance you can't post to something that's just a static list that comes off the server yeah right because it's just a get so the next anti-pattern or common mistake we're going to talk about is poor or no documentation at all. First off, weak or incorrect documentation can cause a lot of issues for anyone working with your API. This is funny. We've been <laughs> Facebook. Sorry. <laughs> We've been working on our, our off sometimes. Uh, readme files and updating our documentation. And I had a uh, I think I talked about this a week or two ago. I had had to like let another developer work on what has kind of been my baby, been the API that I, I worked on for several years and stuff and yeah i had to hand it off to him to to do a fix and he he called me he's like hey so i went to update the readme like we're supposed to and i didn't find anything i'm like yeah that was built before we were doing that so all the stuff is in the uh all the documentation is in the xml comments on there so we need to we need to look into that i was like i I know who to talk to about that and I, i reached out to him like hey He's like, yeah, that's on the list. He's like, I just haven't gotten to that one yet. They're going through and updating all the older apps, but it's just like, I haven't gotten to that one yet. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, written documentation like that is very useful. But you also should be building a lot of your documentation around the notion that keeping documentation close to the thing being documented is valuable. It's so like your XML comments are a good example. That should be there, even if the other's not. It's also really handy to look into something like the open API specification or Swagger for making it easy to work with and test out your API without having to write custom code. So these things will actually build a UI up. They'll build a UI up where you can test things like your posts and your gets and all that kind of stuff. And it's available. Yeah. Any sort of API test bed should allow clients to work with their own data, or it should let them work with a reasonable sample data set. And by the way, that sample data set needs to be sharded per tenant. I've seen APIs that do this. They're like, oh yeah, here's our sample data set and clients can work with it. 
and you'll have clients test out pushing their stuff into there. And it's a shared data set among all the clients. Like, don't do that. No. So uh, I, I heard someone else use the word or the term you just should all over yourself. Uh, yeah. And uh, it was a thing on the Enneagram talking about the ones, but I was like, that's a will phrase. <laughs> yeah. I just want to let you know other people are using that phrase. Yeah, I, I don't I didn't. Oh, I, I, I'm sure you didn't. Probably. But I, you know, I thought it was cool that like other people who are publishing content we're, we're using that phrase too. So I just want to throw that out there when I read the word should. So, yeah. But if you do have an API test bed, um, letting your clients work with their own data is really handy for them when they're writing integration points because they need it to correlate to something in their yeah. system more than likely. And so you're going to want to have that set up like QuickBooks online. It lets you kind of do that in your own little area. Mm -hmm. If you have something like Swagger, you can use it to generate client SDKs for your API in the client's target language. So, you know, like the open API spec lets you do this and it'll generate, you know, C sharp objects for talking to that project. It'll generate Java objects. It'll, it'll generate you know, JavaScript packages mm -hmm. like, you know, NPM module type stuff. That's really handy, especially if your team is not polyglot because now you can support a wider variety of organizations versus, you know, having a developer be told, Oh, well, you know what? This week you're not doing C sharp and you're not doing all the stuff that you like doing. You're doing Python and you're just dealing with a white space, baby. It's just better for your dev team if you can do that. You should also consider having a test environment for your clients so they can try things out without the risk of damaging their own data. We have a UAT user acceptance testing environment just for this. Actually, some of the, the conversations I have had the last several weeks have been about why we don't need to push stuff directly from my computer to UAT. Yeah, because you also have to have a testing cycle yeah. there. Why, why we have a dev and a test, and it's like, yeah, once I push it up you know, into the repo, it shouldn't go directly to UAT. We, we have a process here. But you, know, you, have, you have those people in, in upper, upper, upper management who are so separated from the development lifecycle that they don't get that. Yeah, and they don't understand what the difference is between, oh, you're done with this code. It's like, I'm done with it, but there's 10 other people it has to go through before it's actually out. Yeah, yeah. You don't want me to be the arbiter of what ends up in production or UAT. Very true. Or, or, or go ahead and let me be, and I will disabuse you of that notion through experience. <laughs> However you want to play it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> such environments should also have ways of generating common errors based on input data so that clients can test their responses to common issues. I've seen this with payment processors a lot. So if you do like a $2 transaction, it'll automatically deny it mm -hmm. in the test environment so that you can test what is your workflow when a transaction is denied. Yeah, I've seen or that. what is it if you're doing like uh, credit card stuff and it's expired card, you know, like you probably have a whole Dunning workflow to figure out, you know, how do we get this person to update their card? Mm -hmm. And you need to be able to trigger that for automated testing or manual. Um, and so you've got to have stuff like that in there. Now, most API documentation like this is produced using some form of annotation on your code. And you'll want to prioritize keeping this up to date during the development lifecycle. That's what I was talking about. That's what we were we were doing with like just the processes before your code can get accepted, you have to update the documentation. Yeah. And that's for our newer stuff. The older stuff we're still working on catching up to 
the way we're doing documentation now. It, it is a really good idea because I have had to go and work on stuff where a developer built it a couple of years ago, didn't do the best job documenting it. Other people came in and made changes, did not document it. And you're just like, I don't even know what this does. And even with like an IDE like Visual Studio, you're like, all right, this points over here, but there's nothing over here. It just sort of sits and spins and then returns uh, nothing. <laughs> you know what they call a dead animal that turns to stone? Yeah. Call it a fossil, right? You know what a fossilized comment is? It's a lie. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. And the same thing with documentation, except it's a lie with multimedia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the next anti-pattern is poor consideration of scaling. As an API gets used more frequently, scaling will become an issue that impacts more and more of your clients. And they may decide, hey, we're going to use this API as, yeah, that was uh, built to uh, integrate a uh, command line application with the server as a REST endpoint for all of our websites doing similar things. Oh, and now we want to add this other functionality and this other functionality. And we're going to call it from all the client machines instead of from our server, because why not just do it in JavaScript and have them all individually hitting it instead of no caching? Yeah, Yeah, it'll caching will help you, but it's not enough once you get much scale Mm -hmm. at all. So early on in your design, you should consider replacing, you know, anything that's synchronous with asynchronous workflows if it makes sense to do so. So typically this is done with webhooks. They do a request. They go, hey, do this thing for me. They don't get a response right now. Instead, they pass a URL that says, call this back when you're done. Yeah, that makes sense. So that, you know, they're not sitting there waiting on you and you're not generating load with the waiting and the polling type uh, setup. In fact, any kind of polling loop that you have probably should be considered something to replace with webhooks in general. Don't call us, we'll call you is a attitude that will protect your servers from wasting time on requests that provide no business value. Yeah. You might also want to consider pre-building response payloads that are frequently requested and infrequently changed. Such things could potentially be stored cheaply in a CDN or something like blob storage. So like if you have a you know document of, and I mean a data document, mm-hmm. right? So like all of a user's preferences, well, they don't change those that much. Right. So you could potentially stuff that in a JSON document and put it somewhere yeah. and pull it down when you need it versus constantly joining a whole bunch of tables to get it. It's just there. Also, make sure and rate limit client requests while separating test and production systems. Uh, these strategies are going to help keep client mistakes from damaging your system. Right. So like I've worked with guys that are like, OK, we'll, we'll pull this endpoint every five minutes. And they're like, oh, they're doing wind forms, for instance, and they're not familiar with it. And they use the timer control, right? Okay, the timer interval is set to five. We pull every five minutes. It turns out it actually, if you set it to five, it won't really work because the timer granularity is about 53 milliseconds. But five is actually five milliseconds, not five minutes. And I've seen this done. Really? Oh, yeah, because somebody didn't know. And they weren't looking. They're just like, oh, here's the interval, five minutes. I'm sure it's a minute timer. They didn't check. They just... Right. They just rolled with it. You know, I I have been blessed to not work with anyone like that yet in my career. Hopefully I won't ever. 
I'll tell you, I don't know that it's a blessing because once you realize just how deep the well is, you don't drink out of it. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah I suppose you realize what's in the bottom of that. Well, you just don't trust the bucket anymore. I suppose. I suppose. No, but, um, unlike many other API anti-patterns here, this one will be constantly morphing just an ongoing concern. It's going to be something that you're always going to be dealing with. Yeah. And so you need to design up front because remember, if you change your design, your clients have to change how they interact with you. So you do this as early as possible. Otherwise, it's going to be a redesign. Fix it. All right. Now, the final one we're going to talk about is versioning issues. Your app will evolve over time. And it's unlikely that all of your clients will evolve at the same speed, even if they're all internal. That's why versioning is critical to success. Yeah. And if your application is not new, you'll probably need to support at least three versions of it in production. Um, that's the actual reality. Uh, you'll need to have the beta version of your next API version so that clients can start migrating. You can't just flip the switch and then, oh, yeah, here's all our new APIs. Drop everything you're doing and rewrite everything. Yeah. Uh, Facebook. Um, they've done that to me a few times in the past. You can tell I'm still bitter. That's a very ugly client experience. And this was years ago. Now, you'll also need the existing or stable version of your system for what the client is actually trying to do with your system. Mm-hmm in real time, like they built something to integrate with it, they get a value out of it, that system has to stay up. I do like that um, certain places that like, that know, hey, people are going to, like, especially when it comes like to frameworks and stuff like that, where it's like, all right, people are going to build something with this and it's going to last for years where they'll have a long-term stable version versus just the stable, so like the stable, the most recent stable, and then they'll have like a with .NET Core, it's the point one. It's like right now, like 3.1 right. is the current long-term stable version. The, the, the point one version is their long-term stable. So that's the one they're going to maintain. Even when they've gone on to version 4, they'll still be maintaining 3.1. They may not maintain the other versions. Right. So they won't maintain 3.0, yeah. for instance. Yeah, and, and that's a good strategy, especially for really, really big companies. Mm-hmm. Um, but even for relatively small companies, you're going to want all three. You're going to have to keep the previous version online for a pretty good while so that clients can migrate. And developers love to go, oh, we're going to force everybody off in six months. That's great. But the problem with that is, is the developers don't actually have the power to make that decision. Mm -hmm. Most organizations, we simply do not have that power. So you might as well plan for this up front and go, we're going to support the old version for a good long while. Build it accordingly. Yeah, one one thing I've done and this was just for some internal services is to build backward compatibility into it so that we could, we could support that and then go through and slowly make the updates as we were able. You'll also have multiple environments at the minimum. You'll probably have environments for production testing and sales demos. You'll have to keep these separate from each other and they probably have to work across all your versions. Yeah. um, One thing I see a lot of companies doing is having the test environment and the sales environment be the same. Mm -hmm. That lets one of two things happen. Either your development team breaks the sales team and the sales team is where the money comes in. So that won't happen very long or the sales team chokes the development team because now the development team can't push stuff out to test until sales doesn't have any need to show stuff to clients, which is either never or you're about to be unemployed. 
be really careful with a lot of this stuff because a lot of this stuff really steps up a level from just plain old developer thought processes. So guys, uh, a lot of apps have one or more components that are exposed through a RESTful API. If you do this well and make it easy to work with your API, people will find it easier to start connecting to your system. This is one of the best ways to get and keep larger clients, as most companies are far more hesitant to disconnect from automated systems than they might be from manual. Building your API using REST best practices will reduce the friction for these clients. That pretty much wraps us up before we close everything out. Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, I do want to kind of you know, hammer on a point that I made earlier that anything you do is political in a work environment. You make a code decision, there are political consequences downstream of that. You write a document, there are political consequences. Um, a lot of people don't like that that's the reality, but the fact of the matter is that it is omnipresent, just like gravity. You're going to have to deal with it, and the way you design things is going to have to take that stuff into account. This is why things like Conway's Law apply the way they do, is because this is a a constant you can't escape. So always be considering that stuff, even though you may think it doesn't matter. It can be one of the biggest things that damages your career if you get it wrong. So that's all I got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.